The first Beaver County soldier to die in World War I was named Fulton C. Smith, and he was from Ambridge. He was 23 years old. He died in France four months after being drafted. He had gone to Camp Sherman, and he was part of the 323rd Light Field Artillery. And later, the Ambridge VFW-165 would be named in his honor. I believe that VFW is now closed. So the war resolution was passed, the United States was going to war it with Germany, and Beaver County citizens need to pledge their support. And that didn't just mean, you know, if you were a young man signing up and, and going to war. That meant buying bonds and donating to the war effort. That meant putting the flag out to be patriotic, let folks around you know what you stand for. Welcome to the Rochester Area Heritage Society podcast, featuring our Back in Time Speakers series. I love the small venue here, the small crowd, and I hope it doesn't screw up the podcast thing, but this can be like a conversation. I'm not a lecturer, as my students are finding out. So tonight we're going to talk about uh, Beaver County during the World War I era. Uh, and in order to talk about World War I, we need to go back in time just a little bit to set the stage for what was happening in the county during the early part of the 20th century. This here is a map of Beaver County in 1876. Uh, you know, the shape is the same, uh, but there's a lot, of, a lot of different stuff on here, and there's a lot of stuff that's not there yet. Uh, naturally, on the south side of the Ohio River, uh, at this point, it's pretty much just still forest and, and, and rural farms. Um, you could see Moon Township was still in Beaver County at the time. Uh, there's no Aliquippa. Uh, there's no, you know, Aliquippa at all. There's no South Heights. Uh, and, but north of the Ohio River, uh, in the Beaver Valley, is where all the, all the excitement was happening. So, as I said, prior to 1900, Beaver County, a lot of it was rural, was home to just 56,000 people. Uh, its major industries were glass, pottery, and agriculture. And if you take a walk around the museum, you can see some glass and pottery. Uh, the canal era had come to a close. So the Beaver Division Canal that used to go all the way from Rochester up to Lake Erie uh, had come and gone. Railroads were driving commerce, and streetcars were carrying people all over the county. So for all intents and purposes, Beaver County was an average place. The growth wasn't different than any other Pennsylvania county, but that would change. And as Mr. Don Inman will tell you, Big Steel brought major changes to Beaver County. Not just major changes, but major population increases. And it wasn't just steel. We had more glass, bigger glass companies, uh, and we had many different manufacturing industries. J&L Steel, 1909. Franklin Avenue, 1909-1910. This is Ambridge, American Bridge, looking from across the Ohio River, 1903. These are photos of Midland. This is Midland right at the very beginning, 1907, when Midland Steel Company was just first building their, their steel mill that would eventually someday be crucible. And this is just the interior uh, of a hot finish shop, uh, which it was actually taken, I believe, at Actually, I'm not sure where it was taken. One of the steel mills. So one of the very first things that happened uh, to draw industry to Beaver County was the advent of the Ohio River becoming useful. So if you've ever seen photographs of the Ohio River uh, prior to the 1890s, 
you'll notice two things. First, it looks very shallow and rocky, and it was. Most of the places in the river and most of the year, you could either walk across the river or you could ford it on a horse. Uh, the river at times was only about five to six feet deep. So if you were a tall guy, you could just walk on over to Freedom or, uh, or from here to Manaka. So between 1887 and 1907, the Army Corps engineers built 57 new lock and dam operations along the Ohio River. For the first time, this made the river uh, navigable year round and allowed for industrial concerns to begin expanding their operations outside of uh, the, the urban Pittsburgh area. Uh, in our county, we had dams. This is the Merrill Lock and Dam. Uh, the buildings, some of the buildings still there today, uh, opened in 1903. Uh, and this is, I'm sorry, 1906. This is the dam at Freedom, lock number five. And this is number four, which was at what's called Legionville, Baden. Between 1903 and 1912, the county exploded with population because of big steel. So in 1903, American Bridge came to economy. Uh, technically, they came earlier than that, but they weren't American Bridge yet. They were the Berlin Iron Bridge Company. Uh, but by 1903, American Bridge had become a, an entity. They came and they bought up all the old Harmony Society land and began building their structural steel plant. Ambridge would form around that. 1905, Midland Steel Company came down right along the state line and bought 500 acres. Uh, they, their new town would be called Midland. And one year later in 1906 was j &L Steel coming to Tiny Woodlawn, buying up farms along the Ohio River. Uh, the new steel complex would grow and the new company town would be called Woodlawn. And what you're looking at here are just some newspaper advertisements from that time. Uh, this here is from the, the Daily Times, I'm sorry, the Beaver Times uh, from 1906. This is from the Pittsburgh uh, commercial, the, the commercial newspaper. And this here was from what is today the Post-Gazette. So the new industrial towns grew quickly. That growth spilled over to other parts of the county. Rochester, Manaka, Beaver Falls, Freedom, Falston, New Brighton, they all started to grow. Immigrants from across the globe found their way to Beaver County looking for work. The population of Beaver County grew 42.6% in 12 years. This was the formative period in our county's history. This is a photo of the lower end of Beaver, and what you're looking at here is the, the massive Pittsburgh and Lake Erie Railroad Bridge, which was brand new at the time. This is 1910. And if you look very closely, you can see the old bridge hadn't been torn down yet. So, as we said, Jones and Lachlan Steel came. They built one of the largest steel plants in the world in Beaver County. Uh, 1,200 acres uh, was consolidated. New company town was built. Today it's called Aliquippa. From 420 people in 1900, population of 12,500 people by, were on their way by 1912. This is uh, 1950s. This is before Constitution Boulevard and the overpass kind of gutted the, the, the Y area. And this is Franklin Avenue with Logstown Run meandering down to the Ohio River before anything was built. American Bridge came and they did business with a man named John Duss. Uh, John Duss was the, the last remnant of the Harmony Society, uh, he and his wife. And they were selling off the land uh, and American Bridge came, bought up their land. And uh, today this is old economy, the church and the great house. Ambers was kind of neat. From, in 1903, we have photos that basically show just farms. And within a year, you had industry. This is the curve of the river around what is today Midland, with the very small Midland steel works uh, that would grow into the, the, the massive crucible works uh, 12 years later. 
Midland became home to over 4,000 people by 1912, and that's from zero. This is downtown Midland here. That is the, the uh, Ohio River Scenic Route streetcar. These to run from Steubenville and East Liverpool. And good old Rochester. In 1899, a fire destroyed the Rochester Tumbler Company. Uh, that was right down along the river, and I'm sure there's a photo of it in the hallway out here. Uh, Roger, the Rochester Tumbler Company was world-renowned. It's one of the, the largest glass manufacturers in the world. Its owner was H.C. Fry, Henry C. Fry. So after the, the fire gutted his original operation, he went and he bought land up in what at that point was going to be known as North Rochester, and he built the H.C. Fry Glass Company. Uh, this state-of-the-art plant drew people to Rochester. The Junction City saw a 28.7% population increase. So all these towns are growing, and as they grow, they're bringing with them not just people, but businesses and civic clubs and churches and, you know, the need for new schools and new, you know, everything you can imagine. A few photos of Rochester's landmarks, none of which are with us any longer. Lincoln Hotel, Spire Hotel, the Doncaster House, and the Old Opera House. These three hotels, of course, if you're from Rochester, you know this. These three hotels and the Hotel Rochester were all grouped within a block of each other. In Manaka, it was the Colonial Steel Company, Sanitary Manufacturing Company, and Phoenix Glass. All three of these operations uh, either were um, founded or expanded uh, in Manaka. Old Phillipsburg grew by 68% between 1900 and 1912. This is looking at uh, the very lower end, the, the northern end of Manaka. Um, if you're coming from the Beaver Valley Mall today, you're coming down right here. This is the German Cemetery. Phoenix Glass, before many fires, and Kelowna, Colonial Steel. Beaver Falls saw Babcock and Wilcox's tubular division come in and buy out a smaller operation. Ingrich grew, Moultrip Steel, Union Drawn Steel, Keystone Driller Company, and many more. The Eclipse Bicycle Company and uh, probably another two or three different firms down along Wallace Run. Already the largest town in Beaver County at the time, it grew 21.3%. These are the union-drawn steel folks spelling out Beaver Falls, which would have looked a lot better if they'd have done it from a, from a higher angle. You see what they're saying. Uh, uh, and, of course, Babcock and Wilcox. A man named T.M. Fowler, who obviously was a very patient man, uh, drew these hand-drawn maps of various towns throughout Pennsylvania, and he did several of them here in Beaver County. Uh, and you have to remember at the time, this is 1900, 1901, there were no airplanes. So he was literally sitting up on top of a hillside drawing what he saw. This is New Brighton, this is Beaver, and there's Rochester. And I used to have Elwood City in here, but it didn't make the cut. I do have the Manaka map, but I don't have a good enough copy of it for, for this. The, the copy I have is very, uh, it's on, like, printer paper. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So now we're going to get into the actual war. So <coughs> World War I, uh, just in general, uh, was a controversial war in America. Uh, it was about 50-50, right down the middle, uh, of people who thought that we should be getting involved to help the Europeans, and 50% of people who thought that it just wasn't time for the United States to get into another major conflict. Uh, you have to understand that most of these people still remembered the Spanish-American War, and a lot of them still remembered the Civil War. Uh, and they just felt that maybe, uh, maybe George Washington's original idea of, of not really getting involved with 
international affairs was the right way to go. Uh, but things started to change. And the first thing that uh, started to uh, make that change come about was the sinking of the Lustanza. This was a British uh, sea vessel. Uh, and when, when it went down, uh, sunk by the Germans, uh, well over 400 Americans died. And this really got under the skin of Amer the American citizens. Uh, but at the time, the president, President Woodrow Wilson, was not ready to commit. Naturally, though, uh, because the United States was starting to grow into a power, we weren't the superpower yet, but we were starting to grow into a power industrially uh, and uh, as far as wealth went, uh, there was going to be sabotage. And the first act of sabotage on American soil during World War I was the Black Tom explosion. And this was in 1916, July 30th. It was in New Jersey. Uh, and it was a munitions plant. And German sabotage blew up this munitions plant. Millions of dollars of munitions that were on their way to the Allied forces. Uh, four Americans died. Uh, and it was 100% known that this was German sabotage that made this happen. One year later, the Kingsland explosion. This is also in New Jersey. Another munitions plant. $12 million lost. When it happened, not even nine months later, many people immediately thought this has to be sabotage. No evidence was ever found, though, that it was. Uh, but how the media is today with the very quick news cycle and everything, you know, churning uh, daily. Back then, it wasn't like that. Uh, you got your news from the newspaper. That was it. Or from word of mouth. And word of mouth means gossip and gossip means panic. So a lot of people, by the time they heard the story, it wasn't just uh, sabotage. It was the, the, the Kaiser is getting ready to, 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 to roll into New York City. President Wilson found uh, many critics, uh, one of which was old rough and ready, Teddy Roosevelt, who never saw a battle that he didn't want to gallop into, went to the fish wraps and began criticizing President Wilson. President Wilson had a strong constitution, though, and he managed to, 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 to hold off the, uh, the wolves at the gate. But as you can see, it wasn't, uh, he wasn't very popular in the media at the time. So as the uh, war escalation grew, uh, this was the, uh, the result, patriotism. Uh, Lufthansa was one of the, the, the many reasons why the U.S. got involved in World War I. But the thing that put, that put President Wilson and the government over the top was called the Zimmerman Telegram. And it was a telegram that was intercepted from German uh, intelligence to the Mexican government. And it was promising that if the United States were to get into the war, and Mexico were to align itself with Germany, when Germany wiped the floor with us, it would give Mexico back all of the land that it had lost to the United States uh, in the previous conflict. That was it. Uh, that, that was the last straw. Resolution was passed, and the United States was going to war in April of 1917. These are photos. These are both from Beaver Falls parades. Uh, this is a uh, World War I uh, nurses parade. Patriotic parades were uh, a very uh, big thing back in those days. Uh, as we got into war, and the Allies needed as well, food rationing became a major concern, uh, just like it would be again in World War II. Everything was rationed. Uh, everything from sugar to coffee to, to bread to produce to meat, everything was rationed for the war effort. So food hoarding <laughs> became a problem. 
people were people were hoarding as much food as they could because they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. Something that would unfortunately affect them again two decades later. Uh, but War Garden Bill uh, stated that every family should have a garden. Every family should have a garden to have produce to supplement what they what they need for their nightly table. Uh, this photo here is actually from not World War I. This is from the Depression era. Uh, and this is on Crow Island. These are truck gardens. And you're looking over there. That's West Aliquippa. Uh, J&L owned both the islands in the Ohio River. Hog Island, which was uh, a little bit further north, closer to Manaka, and Crow Island. And during World War I and World War II, they gave their employees small patches of land to garden. They called them victory gardens. During the Depression, they did the same thing, and they called those liberty gardens. These are also from the Depression era. These are steel workers on Crow Island and their family from uh, the, the Pittsburgh Press. And these are just photos of the, the islands from the 1930s showing what they looked like. This was a, a barge bridge that JNL built to allow their employees to get over there. And Crow Island in the, in the peacetime was a, a place of leisure. It had ball fields, football fields, baseball fields. Um, it was sort of a haven, uh, you know, which is uh, amazing because when you think about it, they were, what, 300 yards away from one of the largest steel mills on the planet. Uh, but it must have been a nice spot. So the war resolution was passed. The United States was going to war it with Germany. This is the Daily Times, April 6, 1917. Uh, and just talking about how uh, Beaver County citizens need to pledge their support. And that didn't just mean, uh, you know, if you were a young man signing up and, and going to war. That meant buying bonds and, and donating to the war effort. That meant putting the flag out. And every day I went back through for over a year. This was at the top of the Daily Times every single day. Hang out the flag, be patriotic, let folks around you know what you stand for. And of course, it's Beaver County, so we had to have parades and fireworks. <laughs> but these are all from within a month's time. Uh, this is from Rochester. This was from New Brighton, and New Brighton has parades for everything throughout history. Anytime they had anything happen, New Brighton had a parade. Uh, Manaka, Aliquippa, which would have been West Aliquippa at the time, and Beaver. Beaver actually put out like a program and they had speakers and everything. I mean, we all remember how things were after 9-11 with patriotism and uh, how it was almost impossible to go out and buy an American flag. I mean, I, I drove all the way to Newcastle to buy American flags after 9-11. Well, the same thing was happening in 1917. The anti-German sentiment became uh, palpable, and various institutions began making changes to the way that they did business. Uh, on September 6, 1917, the Beaver Falls School District banned German language classes. In May 1917, St. John Burry's Church in New Swickley banned German language mass for the first time. Up to that point, they had always had German language mass. Uh, they banned it during that time, and I believe they brought it back for a short time after the war, and then it slowly went away as less people were speaking German. Uh, but at that point, I mean, this was a church that was founded strictly by German immigrants. In December 1917, Beaver County officials joined federal agents in putting all German and Austrian-American immigrants and migrants on a watch list for potential terrorist activities. So... Everybody in the county, law enforcement-wise, was they had lists of uh, you know which houses had German and, and Austrian families, uh, and of course that led to you know harassment, and uh, eventually it led to them having all their 
their uh, firearms confiscated. Propaganda on both sides uh, was a big deal. Uh, this film called Civilization was actually put out prior to the United States getting into the war. Uh, and basically what it was was a film showing uh, what the world would look like if the Allies lost the war. Uh, and it became one of the most controversial films ever. And most theaters in Pennsylvania wouldn't show this movie. Uh, no theaters in Pittsburgh showed this movie. Two theaters in Beaver County showed this, this movie. The Lyceum Theater in Beaver Falls and the Queen Aliquippa slash State Theater in Aliquippa. These are just photos of the Savoy Theater that I threw in there because I don't have any good photos of the State Theater in Aliquippa, except for the ones from when they were tearing it down. So as I said, confiscating firearms was next. April 12, 1917, President Wilson authorized the removal of firearms from all aliens. Beaver County Police, town police, county police, sheriffs, and uh, detectives all went around and began confiscating firearms from non-naturally non born citizens. Uh, panic, again, a day later, one day after President Wilson made that declaration. April 13, 1917, 15-year-old Dia Snyder of New Brighton was playing underneath the train bridge, the Pennsylvania Railroad Bridge, between Beaver Falls and New Brighton. Uh, he looked up and he saw what looked like dynamite strapped under the bridge. So, being a good little, you know, good little lad, he ran down to the police station and he told the police, said, I think there's a bomb on that bridge. So the police came down and they came and, uh, and, and they looked, thinking the kid was, you know, probably you know, exaggerating. Sure enough, there was dynamite wired under the Pennsylvania Railroad Bridge. Uh, it was thought that it was a German sabotage plot. And for the rest of 1917, every county bridge had guards, military guards stationed at each end. So the number one thing that had to happen though was we needed an army. And prior to World War I, America's military was not near the force that it is today. Uh, it was about 10% actually, the force that it is today. So, time to, to build an army. And Uncle Sam also wanted your money. Uh, he wanted you to buy Liberty Bonds. And you could do so conveniently at Barnett's in Manaka. Uh, or pretty much at any other store in Beaver Falls or Aliquippa or anywhere else. Uh, war Bonds, uh, Liberty Bonds were, were, were needed. Uh, and Beaver County stepped up, as it always has in the past. Uh, the citizens of Beaver County, in the first week that the Red Cross war campaign uh, for donations for the war effort. This is what was donated. Beaver Falls, over 18,000, and Midland, over 13,000. Uh, and those numbers don't look huge today, but you have to figure the, uh, the inflation. Uh, you know, in, in 1917, 1918, $13,000 be right around 140, $150,000 today. In order to keep enough produce flowing for the war effort, Beaver County school districts joined together and allowed all boys over the age of 12 to be released from attending school if, and only if, they lived on a farm or could find work on a farm. If they could find work on a farm, they could get out of school. So naturally, every kid in Beaver County was running around the farms <laughs> looking, you know, looking for somewhere to work. Uh, I imagine a lot of kids took advantage of this and enough produce was found. And of course, Uncle Sam, who looks very young in that picture, wanted you to garden. The first day of enrollment uh, for, the, for the Army, June 6, 1917, 15,000 young men from Beaver County joined 
uh, and these were the registrations on the first day from all the various towns. Uh, and almost immediately it was known that if you signed up and you went to camp, uh, you were going to end up going to Europe. Junction Park, one of my favorite subjects, uh, located between Rochester and New Brighton along the Junction Stretch, became a training camp, first for the 5th Regiment of Engineers. June 15, 1917, the U.S. government came and they requisitioned the park from the traction company. For three months, the engineers trained there uh, before being sent to France in September. But Junction Park wasn't done yet with its uh, usability for the war. We'll get to that in a second. This is the armory in New Brighton today, the, uh, the municipal building. Uh, but at the time, uh, it was home to Company B, uh, which was uh, the, the, the machine gunners. And Teddy Roosevelt, who is one of my favorite historical people of all time, uh, he loved Company B and he loved New Brighton because of Company B. Uh, he thought they were some of the bravest, the, some of the bravest men to ever serve in the American military. Junction Park then became home to Company B of New Brighton and Beaver Falls. The Be I'm sorry, of New Brighton and the Beaver Falls Battalion, which was brand new. April 11, 1917 was formed. Uh, it also became a training ground for the Beaver Falls Boys and Girls Battalions. These are kids under 18 who wanted to train as if they were going to war. This is a photo of the boys. This is a photo of the girls. And some of the boys in that photo, a year later, would end up going to war. New Brighton, again, loved parades. So they had a parade July 4th. Uh, that's Company B, uh, just about as they were getting ready to, to head out. Uh, this was when the uh, a military uh, parade, not a parade, but a convoy. Yeah, convoy, I'm sorry, passed through New Brighton. Uh, they parked these trucks all along the streets of New Brighton and they were served for free at all the restaurants and hotels um, in New Brighton for that day. And this was Liberty Trucks, was called. That's in 1918. World War I was the first war that introduced some of the deadliest weapons um, that are still used today. Prior to this, uh, you know, wars, war was still being fought you know, mainly the old traditional style of war. And, and mainly you had one-shot, you know, you had not muskets, but you had one-shot guns. You didn't have machine guns. Uh, you know, late 19th century, the Gatlin gun was invented, but the machine gun was something terribly new and deadly. Uh, and, you know, naturally the, the army went around the country staging exhibitions showing all the kids in the neighborhoods how the machine gun worked. This was in Beaver Falls, right along the area where Beaver Falls High School sits today. April 1917. Uh, World War I was also the first war that had poison gas. Uh, it was the first war that used aircraft in it. It was the first war that used tanks. Um, and of course, trench warfare, which was just nasty, just the, the, the worst kind of war. The first call uh, on August 2nd, 1917, this was the first, the first men of Beaver County that were heading to war. Uh, the Daily Times followed these stories uh, daily, both editions. Railroad stations. Uh, railroad stations would be the place where uh, families would say goodbye to their loved ones uh, during World War I and World War II. Uh, this is Beaver here. This is the Beaver station. Uh, but you could picture the same, the, the, the same event happening at every railroad station in the county uh, as you know, families said goodbye to their sons that they didn't know if they, would, if they would ever come back. And as the paper said, final fond farewells are spoken. The first Beaver County soldier to die in World War I was named 
Fulton C. Smith, and he was from Ambridge. He was 23 years old. Uh, he, was di he died in France uh, four months after being drafted. Uh, he had gone to Camp Sherman, uh, and he was part of the, the, the <clears throat> 323rd Light Field Artillery. And later, the Ambridge VFW-165 would be named in his honor. I believe that VFW is now closed, uh, but he was the first casualty of war from Beaver County. So Beaver County ramped up the war, the war effort, and this was the first time that the United States saw the war machine really heat up and cause you know, major industrial and economic growth. Uh, here in Beaver County, of course, industry ruled. Uh, Phoenix Glass became the chief supplier of lenses for signal lamps and runway lights, which were brand new at the time. Uh, and they were doing this on the fly. Uh, if you've ever seen videos of the, the planes, the biplanes flying in World War I, uh, they weren't exactly up to spec as far as modern FAA uh, you know, would want them to be. So as they needed products, they gave defense contracts to companies to build them. And Phoenix Glass was one of the first. Keystone Driller of Beaver Falls also provided traction steam drillers to the British Expeditionary Force at Gallipoli. Uh, and then later, they shipped nearly uh, 200 excavators to Europe to help dig trenches along no man's land between 1916 and 1918. This is Keystone Driller, uh, one of their contraptions there. This is in Beaver Falls. This is actually a photo from Keystone Driller's very first building, which was in Falston. Anti-war propaganda. Uh, was uh, at an all-time high as well. Uh, occasionally, Beaver Countyans would find this literature scattered throughout their towns. This is an actual copy of a flyer that was distributed here in Beaver County. And uh, it's hard to read, but essentially what it says is, what has France done for you? Why are you going to go and die for France? Stay here. Don't go. Other flyers warned Americans of the potential for spies in their midst. Uh, you know, don't talk. You don't know who's listening. You know, Keep out of it. Spies are listening. Anxiety was at an all-time high. And this led to quite possibly the biggest story to come out of Beaver County during World War I, which is the story of Koppel. Little Koppel. Cute little Koppel sitting up there above Beaver Falls minding their own business. In 1906, Henry Ellis of the Ornstein Koppel Company of Germany arrived in western Pennsylvania. He purchased 558 acres in northern Beaver County under the name the Koppel Land Company, began laying out of town. This is from 1907. This is from Wayne Cole's uh, book. Ground was broken for the Arthur Koppel Car Company plant. It would develop and manufacture railroad cars. These are some of the small cars that they made. As a German company, Koppel immediately had the attention of the federal government. As the anti-German sentiment began to grow, on October 4th, 1917, Congress approved President Wilson's Trading with the Enemy Act. This authorized the federal government to seize all property of German-owned companies operating in the United States. On July 10th, 1918, this telegram was sent to police in Beaver County, alerting them that the federal government was coming to Koppel. The Ornstein Koppel Company was declared to be an enemy of the American government. A. Mitchell Palmer, he was the alien property custodian based out of Pittsburgh for the government, was given authority to seize the Koppel Car Works and all property owned by the company or its subsidiaries. This telegram, of course, says all locomotives, portable tracks, cars, industrial railway motors, houses, properties, waterworks, anything, we're taking it. 
On July 11th, U.S. Marshal Joseph Halley and Special Agent Robert Judge arrived in Koppel. They seized the Koppel Land Company, houses, hotels, 700 lots, and 450 open acres, the Beaver Connecting Railroad, the Koppel Water Company, the Koppel Sales Company, and the entire Ornstein Koppel Car Works. In addition, the raid included the homes of 11 plant officials. All 11 were arrested and placed in the Allegheny County Jail. Those are their names, which I'm going to spare you from me trying to pronounce. Uh, most of them, nine of them, would be paroled two days later. Two of them, Eric Joseph and M. Ritter, were interned until the end of the war. They were kept interred until the end of the war. They were kept in prison. This was the only time in American history that a foreign company and railroad was seized and held by the federal government. And it was a story in every newspaper from here to Chicago. Following the end of the war, the federal government sold the property to a private owner, the newly formed Koppel Industrial Car and Equipment Company. The price was $1.3 million. The value of the holdings was estimated to be upwards of $10 million. So basically they took it and then just gave it away. Uh, the new logo for the Koppel Company included a motto that said 100% American owned, in case anybody wanted to know they were not German. Naturally, when you go to war, there's a chance that some men are not going to come home, and unfortunately, Company B was uh, hit with several fatalities. Um, like I said, it was one of the most heroic uh, regiments uh, in the military. A lot of those names are on the uh, memorial across from the municipal building in New Brighton and Townsend Park. November 11th, 1918, the Americans and the Allies had done their job. Uh, the Germans had to surrender. Uh, armistice was coming. Uh, this is from the Newcastle News. And, of course, New Brighton had a parade. <laughs> Welcome home parade. June 19th, 1919. New Brighton celebrates Epoch. New Brighton has the greatest day in history, welcoming communities returned soldiers home. Beaver Countyans were some of the most generous people in America. Uh, total Liberty Loan contributions, over $20.7 million. It's the highest total of any county in western Pennsylvania, including Allegheny County. War savings stamps, uh, 1,164,240. American Red Cross donations, just under 2.4 million. Men and women who served, 5,464. Killed in action, 36. 14 more would die later. Uh, several of wounds uh, and several more from the effects of mustard gas. Eventually they would die of what would be chronic acute pneumonia. This is a panoramic photo. It's actually two parts. You can see. Uh, it's a panoramic photo showing the last World War I soldier procession as they took him to the cemetery. This is right down Beaver Falls. Uh, and uh, his name is something I've not been able to find what the last one was. I don't have a date for the photo, but um, it was the very last soldier. That was written on the back of uh, one of them. The very last World War I soldier to be returned. Industry. Uh, which had obviously heated up during the war, uh, began to trickle down uh, because of the, 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 end of the, the end of the fighting meant the end of the need for defense contracts. Uh, so, you know, America went into a, a sort of a period of uh, demobilization, which led to a slight recession. This is Ambridge, the beautiful view of smog, and then across to Aliquippa, there's more smog. Uh, and memorials. The Ambridge Bridge was built in 1927. Uh, this is a, actually a photo was taken one month before the bridge opened, looking over towards Ambridge. At either end of the bridge were placed doughboy statues, one on the Ambridge side, one on the Aliquippa side. 
later, those statues were returned, to, were given to the towns and placed in uh, prominent spots. The Ambridge one is right, as soon as you come across the bridge, when you come to the intersection there at Merchant Street in the little call park right there next to the post office. Uh, and the Aliquippa one, this is a photo from when the, the honor roll used to be right along Franklin Avenue. It was later moved down to Plan 12 and the Doughboy with it. Uh, and actually this honor roll is no longer there, it's just a, a memorial. And these are some other photos. Uh, about three years ago, I went around the whole county and I uh, inventoried all of our various war memorials, veteran memorials, and honor rolls and took photos of all of them. These are just some of the sampling of some of the World War I memorials. And thank you to all the historians who came before us and those who will come after us. The end. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Any questions? It doesn't have to be about World War I. It could be about anything. Last book I read. <laughs> sure. So the largest arms supplier, World War I, probably World War II, at least for the Germans in, in Europe, was a company called Krupp, K-R-U-P-P. They were, I mean, they sold arms and munitions to everybody. Matter of fact, they had a contract with the, with the British, World War I. British had to pay them for every bullet that they didn't fire. And so they actually sued them after the war for not firing bullets at the Germans. So they, they made money that way. But if you go to the elevator right here, you look at the logo, there's a little three rings and a, like a boomerang. That's the, that's the Krupp Thyssen logo. It's been around for 500 years, this company. They've been arms manufacturers. They st still in existence today. They were forced to merge after World War II, but they're still around today in that logo. But they built that elevator right there. Wow. Well, I appreciate everybody coming again. Thank you so much. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. 